So this New Year's Eve, after uh, nursing my wounds from a really terrible bowl game from my favorite team, uh, no, not necessary. <laughs> There's not any Houston fans in this room, are there? Gosh. <clears throat> oh, out. Behind me, Satan. Yeah. After doing that, we shifted our attention from the board game we were playing with my sisters and brother-in-law just in time to catch like the last 25 or so minutes of 2015, as reported by Ryan Seacrest. As the minutes and seconds ticked down, he and his co-host asked one mildly inebriated pop star after another about their hopes and dreams for 2016. So that's what I wrote this sermon about. A few of them admitted how hard 2015 was in so many ways. The past year saw our collective security shook to the core by terrorist attacks, by police violence, political volleyballing and disunity. So they'd say things like, I just know that 2016 is going to be better. Best year yet. Or then when they were asked, and, and they really said this, I'm not just pantomiming here. When they were asked what their resolution might be for the next year, they, they, they'd say things like, be a better person. I hope that works. Um, I guess Hollywood doesn't need like the normal things most of us do, like lose weight or catch up on your Bible reading or something. They just go for like blanket statements, be a better person. But as I sat there, I couldn't help but think how flimsy and meaningless their recaps and previews were. What could any of this mean in a world like this, in our world? How could any of that be worth it, anything to people around me who are fighting for their lives in cancer wards? fighting to try to get jobs, fighting to try to eat, fighting to navigate the tricky waters of getting good grades, but also actually learning. Um, also, in the meanwhile, trying not to be completely self-absorbed while doing it. Moms and dads, including myself, who are just inundated, like I think of the Jim Gaffigan joke when they ask him, what is it like to have five kids? And he says, feels like you're drowning and then someone hands you a baby. Like that's true for two or three or one, really. <clears throat> or what about my friends who just desperately want to have a kid to be in a place where it's financially or biologically feasible? Or what about my friends Maybe even though the ones that have embraced singleness as a serious vocation, like, like Paul or, or maybe even Jesus. What about the, those ones who feel lonely even when they're around a crowd? For folks like them, for folks like me, for us, we don't need pithy wishes about next year being the best year ever. Or we don't need dreams of all of a sudden having our whole character up until now changed drastically to just become a better person. We need rest. So for the month of January, instead of doing a sermon series like a lot of 
preachers are tempted to do about what you can do more and better, um, or how much you can give, what you hope to do and be. This January, we're going to learn more about doing less. We're going to learn about rest. And don't get me wrong, this isn't just a, a mental exercise. You're going to be challenged to actually make real space in your life. For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about Sabbath. Um, and, and hopefully this is something that um, we'll get better at together. And, and trust me, this is not something that uh, we're going to talk about because I've, I've gone ahead and I'm really good at this. Like, I'm terrible at this. And so this will be a, a challenge and a journey together. We'll, we'll try to um, learn about and, and implement in our, our real lives a, a day of renewal and trust, of ceasing and resting and embracing and feasting. And so today I want to get kind of started uh, halfway there through a psalm that most of us have at least heard and, and a lot of us probably know by heart. Psalm 23. I think it gives us a beautiful vision of just what that kind of rest in God looks and feels like. So we'll kind of go through it. Um, we, we basically sang it a moment ago, but uh, we'll just kind of go through it. Reading together. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We only have to remember a few weeks ago um, something Jackson made sure was indelible memory for all of us, that shepherds are the watchful ones. Shepherds were the ones that were attentive for the coming of Christ. And scripture has a, a long winding theme of good and bad shepherds. If you're reading the Bible, um, you'll see this pop up. With God as the ultimate shepherd. This comes from, from King David's time in the fields, and that kind of anticipates Christ's ministry as the rightful coming king, to the awful shepherds of the Old Testament. Read the prophets, Amos and Micah and Jeremiah. They devour their sheep rather than providing care. The whole of Scripture views God as that sort of caretaker, as a shepherd. So too Christ points to himself as the good shepherd who gives us everything, all of himself, so that we lack nothing. The good shepherd who ushers in the kingdom of God's abundance. Jesus also talks about himself as the gate who lets the sheep into the green pastures of God's good favor. He himself will be Revelation's lamb who conquers sin and death decisively by apparently being defeated, but then being raised to eternal life to overcome. The image of God as shepherd is a great reset for us, I think, in this new year. Uh, James Bryan Smith tells us, it takes a long time to ruin a life, but it starts with the kind of stories we live by. So this morning, if you're living by any other story than that the Lord is your shepherd, you're invited to rest, just to take a rest from it. If you function day to day like God is a hard boss or a, some sort of cosmic Santa, 
let that go. If God seems like a, a father, and, and maybe it's like, like one of your fathers who you could never quite please, let that go. If God feels far off or disconnected or unconcerned, consider that God as shepherd means he'd leave 99 sheep on a hillside to come after you, to bring you back. He wouldn't regret it for a second. Instead, he'd throw a party to celebrate your foundness and his fondness for you. If the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing at all that I lack. And in this I can rest. He lets me rest in grassy meadows. He leads me to restful waters. He keeps me alive. All of me can rest. All of you can rest. He keeps me alive means all of me. There's this word in there, nefesh. It's that throaty, guttural, deep place within you. It's also known as the soul. God the shepherd gives rest. He restores every part of me. Friends, this is good news. That refreshment in God can flood to every corner of our lives. That we might be renewed in our minds, in our bodies, in our spirits, in our hearts. That our work, in our relationships, in our hopes, and our disappointments might be renewed and transformed, and in some cases transfigured, healed from wounds to scars. And the scars remind us that God is faithful. This is the gospel that Christ knew this renewal even unto death and beyond it. And that while we live fragile lives full of hurt, full of vulnerability, God's grace is enough, is more than enough for us. It overwhelms us. His power can be made perfect through weakness so that we can't boast but we can be really proud of the power of God working in and through us. That it is by Jesus' stripes that we're healed and by his scars that we recognize him and that we join him in his resurrection. He guides me in proper paths for the sake of his good name. In this hope and healing are a process he guides me. That's a continuing action. It's not merely a past tense reality. The Lord teaches me, not in the classroom, but on the trail. His word instructs me, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Like any good education, there's a process and a discipline. The need for practices that form us as apprentices of our teacher. As I mentioned earlier, I want to suggest the practice of Sabbath keeping for us. For us who need rest and who seek to listen to God. By stopping what we're doing once a week and simply being the objects of God's love, we live at the intersection of God's abundance and his, his discipline for us. Uh, writer Marva Dawn reminds us, there's a great benefit of Sabbath keeping. 
is that we learn to let God take care of us. Not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. What a great hope for 2016. To give up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives and to find freedom there. And aside from keeping the Sabbath being a commandment, I also think there's no more potent demonstration of the gospel than keeping the Sabbath holy. Here's what I mean by that. We, when we keep the Sabbath, we experience the excess of God's grace. There's an element of witness here, too. I, imagine if a large group of us started keeping the, the, the Sabbath. I, I think that would actually be, by the world's standards, quite odd if we did that. If we just set aside a day to worship. We didn't study, we didn't work, we didn't buy things that day. Uh, we just worshipped by being. If we had practiced restraint, if we were doing by not doing, if we had an intentional like leisure to focus, isn't that what we all want is, is to be able to, to be focused but to do so restfully? To make room for God to refresh us, to guide us in proper paths for his name's sake. This is a demonstration of the gospel because it's shot through with grace and trust, and dependence on God. Because if you and I look at our day planners, I don't have a day planner, but if I had a day planner, if you looked at it, there isn't enough time. There's not enough resources. If you look at your bank accounts, there's never enough. But the triune God who created the universe in ordered time also rested on the seventh day. So there is more than enough. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. Some of you guys are coming off of one of the most difficult, fearful, trying years of your life. How is rest possible amidst such sorrow? with such daunting prospects. Just because the calendar rolls over, that doesn't mean things necessarily change. Just because they, they, you know, we're in 2016 now, doesn't, doesn't mean that the Durham murder rate is gone now. It's just like frozen and now we start over. <laughs> How can anyone possibly rest when they're running for their lives? If anyone knew the answer, it was David, who wrote the psalm. He, he was pursued by his former friend and mentor, King Saul. When you think the height of David's prayer and experience with God would be that he would ask a mighty and providential God just to end it all, to kind of like airlift him out of the valley of death, or better yet, to neutralize the threat, David's well-tuned imagination burst forth with this. You set a table for me right in front of my enemies. A buffet, right? Right in front of your enemies. Maybe the phrase is our most accurate vision for what God's rest might mean for us. Maybe that earlier phrase in the first couple of verses, that kind of mountaintop, mountaintop retreat 
sort of rest with green meadows and babbling brooks, maybe that can be an imagination killer for us in our world. You know, our world has plenty of craziness happening. Craziness that we can't afford to be lifted out of. The craziness of school papers to write and deadlines to meet. The craziness of kids to feed, appointments to keep. The craziness of jobs to apply to, or even just the craziness of what you're about to eat next or where you're going to sleep tonight. Each of our little worlds seems so maxed out. There's hardly room for us to do more or better or even be kinder or more attentive to the suffering of others. Not to mention the macro craziness of terrorists and violence in our neighborhood. With all this in play, idyllic green meadows and mountain streams seems a little silly. But wait, the actual answer, David's actual hope, is even sillier. A table right in front of my enemies? Perhaps the very things that I'm running from, that we're running from, can become the very places where God's rest and his feasting and abundance can be found, where God's going to restore you, right in the middle of that, where God can be savored, where we can be transformed, where these places can be transformed into places of healing and peace and wholeness and enjoyment and renewal, right in the middle of it, right in the thick of things. You bathe my head in oil. My cup is so full that it spills over. This is anointing imagery, where God calls and consecrates someone. I think of Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4, in which he takes the prophet Isaiah's words from chapter 61. And chapter 61, if you've been around here for any length of time, is a really important chapter for Oak Church. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor, jubilee. I also think when I think of anointing, I think of my favorite uh, beard based passage of the Bible, and Camille smiles. Psalm 133 says, Look how good and pleasing it is when brothers and sisters live together as one. It is like expensive oil poured over the beard, running down into the beard, Aaron's beard, which extended over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon streaming down into the mountains of Zion, because it is there that the Lord has commanded the blessing, everlasting life. So our rest is found in this sort of overflow. All of creation exists from the overflow of God's grace, his creativity, his love. Our rest is found in this intersection of purpose, anointing, that preaching good news, proclaiming release and recovery, liberation and jubilee, the intersection of purpose, and the intersection of unity, how good and pleasing it is for us to be together as one. 
I doubt very many of us in this room reached the end of 2015 just thinking, man, my cup is so full, it is spilling over. I know I didn't, and I know our family sure didn't. Uh, when I was in Indy this past week, there was like the, the really dreaded uh, family share time. And it's not my family, it's my in-laws. And so it's like, we don't see my father-in-law a whole lot because he's working crazy hours, but there's like these small windows and we see them and everyone tries to stay moving just long enough so that not everyone's in the room at the same time so he can like institute sharing time, right? But it happens. Um, and, and then it's like automatically you, you get to like, what am I gonna say that is gonna be like spiritually profound but not contrived um, for, for my family? <clears throat> but I have to say, in regards to this, in regards to abundance, in regards to my cup overflowing, uh, I, I shared that, that throughout this, this year, particularly the second half of the year, uh, it was amazing to me, and, it, and I think it's, it's shown me what grace looks and feels like, to know that... Um, in my family and in my marriage, were completely maxed out in one area. Rach, for a time, was really sick um, and really depleted and not able to to do and and to be um, much beyond focusing on on her healing. And all the while, there was this abundance and this refreshing um, over here, or God sending the gift of my parents in town to help us over here. And, and, and so as we're on the other side of this, I, I realize um, that grace makes the impossible possible and lack abundance. Um, and, and that's something I, I, I don't think I could have told you from such vivid experience this time last year. Yes, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the Lord's house as long as I live. Finally, our rest is found in God's pursuit of us. That we don't have to always feel like we need to make it happen, but that God has rescued, is rescuing, and will Rescue this broken world in Christ. That goodness and faithful love, that like steady drumbeat love, will pursue each and every one of us. Like the poet Francis Thompson coined it, like a hound of heaven, it will pursue us. It'll nip at our heels. And then when we're found, God brings us into his presence because he's made a dwelling with us in Christ. That's what our whole Advent expectation was for, that God might be with us and that we might dwell with God. This is where our rest lies in Emmanuel, God with us and us with him. So I want to close with Jesus' own words of invitation, which I think are still so poignant and potent for this new year. They come from Matthew 11, 28 and through 30. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, 
and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this good news. This good news that your grace is enough for us, is more than enough that you call us into rest, not just on mountaintops and by streams, but right in the middle of our enemies, right in the middle of our fear, right in the middle of our feeling of being abandoned or alone. You're with us. You feed us. You heal us. You equip us. You call us. You guide us for your name's sake. Help us live into that, each and every one of us. Help us do it together. And we thank you. In Jesus' strong name, we pray. Amen.